Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. And away we go into the way, way back machine. (laughs) Good morning, afternoon, good evening, whatever time you might be listening to this. Today is a nice, lovely, rainy day. The first one since I've been back here in South Carolina. And though we've made some great strides on the boat, and we'll talk just briefly on that, It's a rainy day, so I'm sort of stuck inside. Momentum has not completely been destroyed as far as the boat projects go, but we do have to take a bit of a pause from the work that I was doing uh, for the last two days, which was installing the new gallows, the new-to-me gallows, and getting everything uh, tuned up and kind of looking a little more familiar and a little more normal to what I'm used to seeing when I climb out of the cabin into the uh, cockpit. Excuse me. So this is, um, I don't know, I figure this would be a good time to break off. And I was sort of scrolling through some of the old episodes and I came across episode number 39 way back when I was doing a series on the Appalachian Trail hike from 2012. And I realized that that was basically where I stopped and I left everybody hanging, which I, uh, in a, in a sort of messed up, confused way, I think it's kind of can be a good thing where you have so many things going on and you're juggling so much that you do get lost a bit. But at the same time, it means that, like I said, I leave people hanging every once in a while and I don't want to do that. So we are going to continue on. I'm not sure. I think... I think I have to break this into two more episodes to round out the old Appalachian Trail because where we left off on episode 39 was at the end of Massachusetts. I had just taken a breather and visited my Uncle Bill and my father. He had come out and hiked Mount Greylock, the highest summit in Massachusetts, and then we headed off to Gloucester to spend a couple of days sort of relaxing, reminiscing, you know, um, sharing war stories of adventure and and all that sort of stuff. So some of my fondest memories were were back there. But in any event, uh, that's not too far from the border with Vermont, and that, for an Appalachian trail hiker, uh, ends up being a pretty pivotal moment, but That's what we're going to sort of get into, and we'll get into Vermont and New Hampshire, and then possibly we'll just throw down into Maine, but we'll see. We'll see how how much I can pontificate on the subject of the last few states of the Appalachian Trail. But, as I always say, before we get into this, if you want to support the show like so many in the Patreon family, the Sailing into Oblivion family, the supporters do, we're 46 six strong at this point you can follow the link to the patreon page and help keep the show going and uh you know pay for things like these new microphones and all that sort of stuff and mostly just keep the show going and we do have some fingers crossed pretty cool interviews coming up um so we're we're gonna have to see got to kind of travel to get to some of these places and some of these people which 
definitely, uh, you know, gas and all that sort of stuff. So it really, really does help uh, keep the show going and and hopefully get more people and more interesting uh, content out there because I really, I, I enjoy doing the solo shows, but I really enjoy doing the interviews and learning about people and really just having a great little excuse to sit down with somebody cell phones off and just have a one-on-one conversation uh, where you always end up learning definitely about the person but learning about life in general so thank you all for all the continued support over the last bunch of months and over the year actually if you want to pick up any of the sailing into oblivion merch i'm actually wearing one of the zip up hoodies right now and i actually have one of the t-shirts on underneath it kind of weird uh it does kind of feel a little little strange to be wearing my own merch, but I don't know. I like it. It's comfortable. <laughs> I'm a walking billboard. You can follow the link if you want to uh, be a walking billboard for Sailing Into Oblivion, although I have tried to keep it relatively label-free. You know, I never... I was the type of kid who used to always... Uh, basically cut tags off and try and look for shirts and things like that. It just wasn't splaying the logo of, of the stuff. And I know this does have sailing into oblivion, but I don't know. I've always thought sailing into oblivion was kind of a, a cool tag, less, less a company name and more of a way of life. (laughs) How cheesy is that? I love it. Uh, but you can follow the link to the merch page, and uh, we have five different shirts, T-shirts. I even have the kid sizes and stuff like that now. So very cool stuff. And then if you want to reach out to the show, obviously, sailingintooblivion.com. Click on the podcast button, and it'll take you to the Contact the Show link. And those go directly to me. And I always love getting uh, getting some some notes and getting some uh, some good emails People are so supportive of uh, sort of the stuff that I do and the information that I try and share. So I really do appreciate that. Ah, woo! There. Now we can uh, now we can deep dive into the old AT. So essentially, take this little break, and you know, my father, my uncle, and I, and and we're out there. You know, it's uh, scotch around the kitchen table at you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night. And we go through a few days of that. And it's kind of bittersweet for an Appalachian Trail through hiker where you get a few days off all up until this point. I think I had taken maybe one or two full days in a row off every once in a while. Very, very rarely more than just one full day. And even that was never an actual near uh, a zero. It was more a Nero. Uh, which means you you still are hiking a couple of miles to get into a town. You take the rest of that day off, and then the next day you're back at it. So at this point, you know, I'd taken about four days off, and my father dropped me back off. I only had maybe 10 miles left to go in Massachusetts before crossing over into Vermont, which essentially gives you only three states left. And I remember getting off, getting into the trail, started hiking a little bit and then I don't know for some reason I just didn't feel like getting on the trail again I felt uh I felt very disconnected from that sort of trail life that I had been living for you know a hundred days almost and so I ended up turning back around and going into uh North Adams which is this little tiny town and finding a hotel room and actually going and uh, 
posting up for the night and getting sort of back into that little bit of a routine of, you know, just a, a normal trail town sort of stop. And so booked a little crummy little hotel room and which is always fabulous. I loved every single one of them. And I ended up going and doing what I called the mini bar night uh, because across the street was a little liquor store. And for whatever reason, when I walked in there, they had, you know, that full selection of the shooters, you know, the single shot uh, drinks. And the the motel obviously did not have a mini bar, uh, but it did have a mini fridge. And I thought, oh, boy, you know, it'd be kind of fun. I've got sort of the whole afternoon and night and then I was going to be fresh on the trail the next morning. And I sort of I stocked up and I stocked the the little fridge with essentially all these little shooters and then some sodas and things like that uh, to make it very reminiscent of way back in the day. I always I always picture that scene in planes, trains and automobiles where, you know, they've wrecked the car. They check into the hotel. Steve Martin pays with his watch. John Candy's out in the car because he can't afford the room and eventually invites him in. And then they just basically raid the minibar. And, uh, you know, they're they're laughing about the catastrophe of the trip and everything. And so I had that sort of in my head and, um, you know, just had kind of a fun night kicking back. And, and you know, at this point, there's a big theme in in my hike as the end drew closer and closer, and that was slow down. Slow down. Don't let this adventure just completely slip away before you even realize, holy cow, it's over and that was it. And it's hard to do that. It sort of goes against your physical abilities at this point because hiking 25 miles in a day over pretty hefty terrain is no longer really an issue. Uh, When you've when you've reached, you know, you're closing in on 1,800 or 2,000 miles, your legs and your body are well accustomed to serious hiking. And, you know, your body's saying, let's just go. Your mind is saying, man, I, I just uh, really need to take in and savor every moment. And I also don't want this thing to end because I was enjoying it so much. And essentially, uh, I have this internal battle going on. And so I hit the trail the next day and we're flying. And even in my journal, I reference it of just like, I need to slow down, but I can't slow down, but I need to slow down. And I'm having this sort of back and forth, but I finally enter Vermont and Vermont has a a lovely nickname called Vermud because you sort of get into the green mountains. Um, Massachusetts definitely has a little bit of height, but Greylock even Greylock wasn't all that that imposing, but as soon as you cross that border and you start getting into Vermont, then you're actually looking at the Green Mountains and some serious climbs and more altitude. And it had been a pretty hot summer so far, but now all of a sudden, when you're when you're climbing up uh, some pretty pretty hefty little elevations, you know, up to like 3,900 feet. Um, let's see, what's some of the other big ones? I think that might be the biggest, about 3,000. That's uh, Mount Killington, because there's a lot of those uh, ski resorts and things like that that you're actually part of the Appalachian Trail. And so I'm always at this point trying to camp at elevation because it would damper down the mosquitoes. You know, ever since... Massachusetts mosquitoes had become insufferable. You couldn't even stop during the day. I remember looking down in Massachusetts and 
stopping for just a few seconds and my arms would literally be covered by these tiny little mosquitoes and you know bug spray all that stuff it really doesn't do much when you're sweating profusely because it was also very hot but now I'm in Vermont and I'm getting a little more elevation and I actually get into some some uh, thunderstorms it kicked out a lot of hail and I remember one night or one evening in particular way up way up in elevation I had a little bit of a, a trail magic sort of miracle where I was almost completely out of fuel and uh, walked up and there was this every once in a while you'll find it's almost like a mailbox it's like an AT register and it's typically just on a post and it's a little tiny box and, and you open it up and there'll be a spiral notebook and you can scroll down, you know, who you are, what you're thinking and all that stuff. And, and also really look for who else is around you because most everybody does at least sign it. And inside of that, lo and behold, was a fuel canister. It was completely full. Just what I needed. Couldn't believe it. Um, that meant the difference between essentially probably eating something lukewarm and not fully cooked, and then actually a fully cooked meal with then some sort of hot, lovely drink afterwards. But uh, at this point, it's starting to get a little bit darker, and there's really not a whole lot of places to camp. Because I'm trying to camp at altitude, I'm not looking for the shelters. I'm just looking for a little cool little stealth camp, a spot that I can pitch my tent for the night in the evening, pack it up pretty much at sunrise, and then get back moving again. And I sort of got stuck in a situation where whatever hilltop I was on was absolutely soaking and soggy. It was really living up to that nickname of Vermud. And there was one time where I just got to a point where I was like, I just don't care. I'm wet from being rained on and there's hail and it's cold and I just want to lie down flat and just sort of get on with the night. And so I remember sort of stomping off the trail and you do have to be kind of careful up there because you're starting to get into sort of moose territory and all that sort of stuff, or at least that's the impression that I was under. And I remember sort of scoping around and just seeing the tiniest bit of a patch of sort of, you know, not exactly grass, but it was all almost mossy. And I, I stomp over to it and immediately realize that I'm I'm on this sort of soft cushion that is almost submerged in water, but not quite. And, you know, when you stand on it, your boot goes down two, three inches and, you know, boots were already completely soaking wet, so it didn't matter. But I'm thinking to myself, well... I haven't seen any other spots where I could remotely even think about pitching my little tent. And I guess we're just going to have to do this because I didn't want to be stomping around Vermont at night trying to look for a place to sort of post up, especially with the temperature being sort of dropping off. And I think at that point, the, you know, the idea of getting to another shelter or something like that was completely out of the question. And I ended up, um, I ended up, thinking, well, if my boot sinks in only two inches, then maybe if I spread the load out uh, as far as the tent and my sleeping pad and all that, then maybe I'd sort of act like a bit of a raft and be floating. And believe it or not, it actually sort of worked a little bit. Um, it was a muddy mess by the time I had actually pitched the tent. You know, you're walking around it constantly, churning all this stuff up and pitch the tent, 
get inside of it and pretty much just lay flat. And I can feel like it's almost like a waterbed. So it's an air mattress that I'm on, but the whole ground is sort of squishy. So it's kind of an interesting uh, setup at that point. And everything was a little seepy, a little bit damp, but there didn't seem to be any water coming in. So I sort of chalked that one up to be a score and uh, went through my nightly tent time routine of filling in my journal and looking at the Appalachian Trail Guide and and all the chart or not charts that's the nautical me uh, looking at the elevation maps and seeing what I was going to get into for the next couple of days and I just remembered that being one of the soggiest most uncomfortable nights that I had had on the trail um, albeit it was a bit chilly and the sleeping bag was warm so at least I had that but it was just sort of it was sort of bringing home the fact that I couldn't quite just wing it like I had been. You know, those middle Appalachian Trail states, Connecticut, Massachusetts, uh, New Jersey, New York, there were a lot of areas where you just sort of, you could almost hike until it got dark and then you could just pull off and find someplace because it's not super crazy hilly. But now we're back into sort of the reputation of you know, the Green Mountains, the White Mountains, Maine, all this sort of stuff. We are actually dealing with some pretty real deal wilderness up there. And, you know, you don't want to get caught out and you don't want to get in trouble. Um, the idea of like hypothermia in the summer is not a huge priority until it sort of smacks you in the face a little bit and says, hey, you know, uh, you're pretty chilly tonight and you're also wet and there's no way you're going to be able to start a fire. So... You might want to stay on your toes just a little bit. But needless to say, I make it through that night and we get back on the trail and it's still pretty much just mud, mud, mud. And in Vermont, one of the neat places um, just before I think you get into Mount Killington and all that sort of stuff, you end up walking around this corner and it's kind of like a I want to say it's a very similar to like pine forest. And suddenly you're just confronted with all these bright white rocks and stones and boulders that have all been stacked up by human hands, obviously. But it, it's in such an immense array, and it's probably this area the size of half of a basketball court where all this has been done. And there's big boulders and small boulders, but people have for years gone and and spent time there stacking these rocks in very unnatural formations and it's very eerie i remember when i was researching and watching every appalachian trail documentary and things like that they all showed that as a pretty cool point of interest on the trail and i had sort of forgotten about it cuz i couldn't remember exactly where it was but you turn this corner and boom, you're hit by this image that you've seen a million times and it's creepy and it's odd and it's completely unnatural and you're sort of walking around it. And I know I always have that first, that instinct of we got to knock all these down. <laughs> Luckily, calmer heads prevailed and I did not do that. I just sort of took in the uh, aesthetics of, of this sort of situation being deep in nature uh, but at the same time, surrounded by this sort of unnatural uh, landscaping that, that people have done. And it's just this, I don't know, it almost gives you that creepy feeling like in the Blair Witch Project where they you know, first come across the 
the dangling stick figures in the uh, in the trees. I, I don't know. It gives me the willies. Uh, but you know, so I didn't I didn't linger there too much. But it is kind of fascinating when you're out in nature. It's all just natural stuff. You're not seeing anything man-made, and then all of a sudden you come across this this you know woodland artwork, if you will. Uh, it was a bit 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 striking and kind of kind of interesting, but also kind of creepy. But uh, shortly thereafter, because I had had such a kind of ugly night the night before, and also there was forecast some pretty bad rain and thunderstorms for the next night, I ended up. Um, actually staying in a shelter and this would have been for the entire at shelter number like five i think i had pretty much given up on them way back in georgia and then stayed in the over over hilter over under something something big red barn uh way back in i think virginia and uh after that yeah i just you know between the mice people snoring the unwanted guests that come in the middle of the night um make a bunch of noise and all that stuff. It, it was not appealing. And I knew I was always going to get so much better sleep if I stayed in my tent. You know, the extra effort was well worth it. But with this situation, I, you know, I get down to this little, uh, very interesting little shelter. Uh, I want to say it was, do, 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 do. Hmm. I wonder if I have it actually written. I've, I, right now I have the AT guidebook and then I also have my my journal sort of uh, set up. But, you know, that was one of the things where I didn't do a great job of documenting um, or at least documenting in a, in a very organized fashion where I stayed uh, each, each single night and everything. I tried to, but um, it didn't really work out all that well. But let's see. Okay, Ramada in. Do, 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 do. Oh, no, those are lodges. I want the actual... Do, 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 do. Story Branch Street. Do, do, do. <clears throat> oh, I wonder if it's Big Branch. It could be. Let's see. Oh, it was. Uh, huh. Yeah, I didn't even write them down correctly. <laughs> so stupid. Uh, oh no, those are shelters. Sorry, I'm I'm almost there. West Virginia, Thompson Lodge. Yeah, maybe I'm not. I don't really understand. Uh, do, 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 do. That's Mount Greylock. Do, do, do. Green Walls. Green Wall Shelter. So, Green Wall Shelter. We're going to call it that one. <laughs> um, but essentially, it's it's kind of this interesting little... It was like a, a holla or a dugout or a valley. And this, this shelter was right in the middle of it. It was all sort of cleared out. I mean, normally it would have been something that kind of looked a little dirty and it, it wasn't very appealing but on that night you know the winds were starting to howl and the rains were definitely coming in thunder and lightning in the distance and all that and I was luckily the only person there and it was already becoming almost night so um, I just figured you know what I'm gonna post up right in there and I, I believe I ended up even setting up my tent inside of the shelter just because you never really know. Sometimes those things are pretty leaky. There's nothing more miserable than being in a shelter. And remember, these are three-sided. They don't have they're not completely enclosed. So, you know, they face the the open woods and if the winds decide to kick out of that direction, you're going to get wet. So, uh set up the tent inside the shelter and <clears throat> you know, lo and behold, I don't I don't remember it being super leaky, but you know, it probably was. <clears throat> and spend the night in there and it was one of the most miserable 
nights again because you know instead of sleeping on nice sort of soft earth now i'm i'm on this really stiff old wood platform and sort of rolling around and just not used to it and i think it it more than anything firmed up the fact that i just never wanted to stay in shelters ever again if i could if i could help it always try and sleep right on the ground because it just makes it that much better <clears throat> but shortly thereafter the the next place was going up Mount Killington. And this was going to be basically one of the uh, highest uh, eminences of of the uh, section in Vermont. And one of the things that had happened is a few years previous, I think it was Hurricane Irene had come through and smashed into, you know, the upper New England area. And it had washed out many bridges roads and a lot of the actual trail and we were all very well aware that you know the the trail was pretty messy there were a lot of different alternate routes and things like that trying to sort of keep you on the right track and lo and behold I got absolutely completely lost on Mount Killington and so you know sort of I you, you realize after a while of not seeing any of the uh the white blazes on the trees that sort of mark the trail that you, you might be kind of in the wrong place and finally end up, you know, on some old like logging two track, or maybe it was a maintenance road for the actual ski resort. Cause Mount Killington has a ski resort on it. And I sort of thought, I, I think that gave me a bit of overconfidence where I was sort of like, well, I'm not going to get lost here. It's a ski resort, you know, all that sort of stuff. But you know, hour after hour, I'm just marching through and, and this, this two track sort of peters back out into more just, just blank woods. Um, it seems to be, there was a little bit of a trail, but not a huge one. And eventually I just come across like a dirt road. And I, at this point have no idea even what side of the mountain I'm on. Um, you know, it was a gray sort of overcast day and, so you can't really tell a whole lot. I'd been to the peak, but I had basically lost my way coming down and, eventually you know i just i just start walking on this road and and i see a couple of houses and there's one house where i can hear somebody is working on something like in their garage or something like that and i end up walking down their driveway and i'm like hey excuse me hi do you, is there any way you could tell me where where i am i'm sort of lost and uh they thankfully took pity on me they didn't uh, run me off their property for trespassing or anything like that and I, I walked up the driveway and you just try and be as unassuming as possible uh not sneak up on anybody you know I sort of remember shouting you know hello uh from pretty far away so that uh you know you didn't spook anybody but essentially uh Got to talking with them, and the homeowner actually had somebody in there who was doing some work for him, but then was coming out of a town called Rutland, Vermont. And Rutland is pretty much, well, it's not quite the end of Vermont. Um, actually, it's not even close to the end of Vermont. Uh, well, I suppose it is. It's about 40 miles or so from the end of Vermont. And... Uh, offered to take me in there and it was a bit of a gap between you know Mount Killington and Rutland but not much I think it's very negligible it was probably only like five miles or something like that and I figured you know I'd pretty much made it up in just wandering through these woods aimlessly and lost uh as far as the mileage went you know I I was never a complete diehard AT through hiker where I wanted to 
step foot on every single inch of the entire trail. Like if there was a bit of a mishap, as in what happened on Killington, then, you know, I, I sort of just write that off. It wasn't like, oh, well, I'm going to go do Killington over again just to make sure. So I get into Rutland, and Rutland's kind of a urban, well, not an urban, but uh, I don't want to, I don't want to disparage uh the town or the city of Rutland, but it was one of the larger places that uh, I ended up, larger towns, I ended up on the AT staying for a night. And, you know, it just had the sort of huge sprawl of hotels and car car lots and fast food, but it was like huge. And you could tell it was, it was more like a real city, not like these little tiny little hamlets and things that I had been going through in Massachusetts and most of New England and, and Connecticut and stuff. So I don't know. It, it, it was all right. It gave me all the things that I needed. I was trying to find some shoes, but I couldn't find them there. Um, just didn't have a huge amount of time. And it was one of those days where you're sort of confused and a little bit uh, rattled just because you got lost and all that. And I just sort of wanted to get on with it and, uh, and get moving through Vermont and, and sort of out of the, uh, out of the way. The very next day, it was uh, actually my 100th day officially on the trail and ended up doing about 20 or 25 miles. Pretty good, substantial hiking, trying to shake off being lost and all that sort of stuff and knew that I was pretty much on the cusp of getting out of Vermont and heading into New Hampshire. And I had a good friend, Meredith, who uh, her family had a little uh, B&B up there in Hanover. And essentially, you've got you have the two towns are sort of like twin towns of Norwich. And then you've got, uh, the, you walk across this bridge and that's the border between Vermont and New Hampshire. And before I got up to Norwich, uh, I remember finding a wallet on the trail, uh, a little like purse wallet thing. And, you know, obviously you open it up and check out what's in it and everything. And there was 150 bucks in it. And, you know, I don't I, I know in my lifetime I have I have come across things like that now and again. And typically I'm always trying to turn them into someone, the authorities, things like that. I remember uh, when I was a kid finding I think it was a wallet and we ended up putting a, a thing in the newspaper. And I don't know if somebody claimed it or not. I can't really remember so, so long ago, but in this case, being on the AT and sort of being in nature and being vulnerable to the elements and definitely the strange air of karma and trail magic and all these sort of things. And so far on the trail, I'd been blessed many times as far as coming across things that I needed at that same moment, which as odd as it seemed, you know, sort of take on this sort of mystical feel and I, I know definitely at that point, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to do a solid and ended up pulling into Norwich and there's a big sort of notice board, you know, the typical state forest or state park, you know, with these got maps and things like that. And I ended up tearing out a page on my journal and saying, you know, found wallet, da, 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 um, turning it into police station in Norwich. So I went to the police station in Norwich and I turned it in and everything and Lord only knows what they thought of me. I mean, I was pretty, pretty greasy and grimy um, from, you know, hiking in Vermont and everything. And it had been now like a pretty hot day. It went from cold to hot because uh, it is summer. I mean, we're talking about middle of June at this point. But 
turn that in, and then I take my walk straight over into Hanover. And it's kind of cool. You know, you step over that bridge, and it's the, the state line signs are typically just these little wood signs, you know, that show, like, uh, you know, Tennessee and uh, North Carolina or Tennessee and, and Virginia, things like that. And this one, you know, is embossed right in the middle of this beautiful bridge, and it's all, like, you know, uh, chiseled into the rock, and it's, you know... V V A and or V T uh, and then a slash and then N H and it's kind of like holy cow, again it's hitting me that hey you know you are running out of time here sir so you better uh, you better sort of get it going because there's really only about a hundred miles in Vermont and then New Hampshire wasn't really that much different as far as the mileage let's just check it out real quick. Oh, do, do, do. oh, that's Maine, Hardy Pass. Yeah, New Hampshire doesn't have a lot either, but New Hampshire does have some serious, serious hiking. Probably some of the most serious hiking that uh, you get on the old AT. So just over 100 miles in, uh, oh, like 160 miles. 100, yeah, about 160 miles uh, of hiking in New Hampshire. So, you know, Vermont was one of the last, like, super short states where you know you get across in just a matter of a handful of days and you know i ended up connecting with uh these old friends i needed shoes i was on like uh, i think i was on pair number four uh out of five and i desperately needed some new shoes knowing that i was going into maine and i was actually going to flip the bill and and pay for a decent pair of like hiking shoes not boots uh because those had waved goodbye a long time ago you just don't need them um but pulled in and got to see some familiar faces they put me up in their b&b little guest house which was great and uh, it was sort of like a fresh start to get into new hampshire and start plugging away and the looming dangers uh of not only new hampshire the white mountains but also maine quickly become excuse me very apparent when when you hit that state, um, as you read through the guidebook, it starts talking a lot. There's a lot of like warning stuff. Um, you know, <clears throat> let me just read verbatim from from the Appalachian through Hiker's Companion. This is the 2010 version. Whoa, old school. Although this is considered one of the most challenging states, it is also one of the most rewarding. As the trees get shorter and the views get longer, you've entered the Cromwell Holtz zone (laughs) where trees are stunted with flag like tops due to stress from the wind and cold. Boreal bogs are home to local carnivorous plant species, sundew and pitcher plants, hardy yet delicate alpine flowers, Labrador tea, bunchberry, mountain and sandwort, sandwort and cloudberry. Ooh, that sounds pretty good. Maybe in blossom when you pass through. Much of the trail is above tree line. Where the temperatures may change very suddenly, snow is possible in any season. Snow falls on Mount Washington during every month of the year. High winds and dense fog are common. Most shelters and campsites charge a fee. And then it says, uh, and these were the ones that I always loved because they affected me more than anything. Tenting is prohibited within 200 feet of the AT from Connecticut River, Vermont, to the summit of Mount Musalak. Uh, you know, I was a cowboy camper. I really wanted to be able to make sure I um, was doing it how I wanted to do it, and I wanted to hike 
the number of miles I wanted to hike. I didn't want to really go and just abide by all these rules. <laughs> but I don't recommend, you know, illegally camping on the AT or anything like this. This was well past the statutes of limitation, so I could be very honest with you. I wanted to hike basically above tree line as much as possible, as long as the weather was okay, which I know is illegal, but, um, you know, I was a youngster, rambunctious, tomfoolery, all that sort of stuff. But now I'm into Vermont, and <coughs> I have new shoes. I have a new outlook. I'm still battling that whole interior battle of do I – just keep going and blast because it's fun to just hike 25 miles a day and climb these mountains up and down? Or do I try and slow my roll and take take more time sitting, contemplating, enjoying views, things like that? And so, you know, that battle rages on pretty much the whole rest of the time. So we ended up hiking pretty pretty well i say we i don't know i always just say that it's just me at this point and i think that's worth noting that a lot of the second half of the appalachian trail was completely solo you know you'd see people throughout the day every once in a while but it was few and far between and camping was almost always done in solitude um and i had a nice nice easy day getting back on the trail but it wasn't until the next day <clears throat> that I came across probably one of the top three or four campsites that I had uh, seen on the AT. And the first one, the number one, uh, was down just just about a mile or two, or no, like seven miles, I should say, outside of the NOC down in North Carolina. And then the other one was Trey Mountain in Georgia, and these just, you know, these were just such epic vistas. You're camping at altitude. It's sort of either a bald or a cliff or something like that. But you, you know, these are the kind of sites where you set up your tent, you sit down and you've got a nice little fire and you are looking out at the world in its most beautiful form. And they're few and far between, I have to say, on the AT. But boy, when you do find them, they are absolutely epic. And this one in particular was very, very cool. And it was kind of spooky as well because as you're coming down the trail, there's I was headed towards an area where there were shelters, but then essentially came across a, a very old fire tower. And when I say very old, I mean it was absolutely rickety. Like I can't believe this thing it hasn't been disassembled it probably has by now um i believe it was about 100 years old or something like that and it it essentially um you know rusty and it's this teeny fire tower you know you get up in it and it's probably like only eight feet by eight feet you know there's a couple windows that are busted out it was windy so the whole thing's sort of swaying and i think it had three of the cables three out of four that were still connected but they're all like slack so really kind of like dangerous going up there but just down the trail from that area was this tiny little circle in pine trees and it had a fire pit there and obviously had been used as a, a campsite many times. And we're elevated, and there's this beautiful running lake off in the distance, you know, way down below. And it's just this beautiful sight. The clouds, I remember the clouds were that Simpson-esque sort of scene where there are nice fluffy white clouds against a blue, blue sky. And I just posted up. I can't remember how many miles I had done that day. Not 
a huge amount, but it was absolutely just one of those spots that had to be grabbed and taken advantage of. And it was one of those times also where I, I really yielded to that slow down, let's take it in. And I think even on the, yeah, on my June 14th uh, entry, it ends with take it in, take it in, period. And really, you know, it was just one of those times there was a great excuse just to kick back. And I think I had had a book or something like that, but mostly it was just me sort of hanging out. I did really screw up dinner that night. It was one of those nights where I was cooking on the actual fire with the pot. I believe it was macaroni and cheese and went uh, and was watching it. And suddenly whatever little stick I had propped things up on to make it nice and level caved. The whole thing spilt. Steam plume shoots off the hiss of water and noodles on fire. And uh, then you got basically half your meal left. But so such is life. Uh, it's a little more drastic for an AT hiker because you only have a certain amount of food in your pack. But there was going to be a resupply the very next day. So it wasn't too, too big of a deal. But it was really enjoyable. I just remember going up and spending a lot of time in that fire tower a little sketchy, but definitely really cool. And the views were absolutely amazing. Now, the next one was, the next day essentially was one of the big, big climbs. And that was Mount Musalak. And I've heard it pronounced Musalak and Musalaki. Um, I don't really know which way is up when it comes to that. But essentially, it's one of the first mountains that you come to that is actually above tree line and so you actually um while you're you're hiking and there were these really great um shelters and campsites and stuff like that just at the base and i hung out down there for a little while because i was sort of contemplating should i go up there or should i not do i want to just post up down here it's sort of getting later in the day and then all of a sudden it sort of hit me and i i sort of thought like you know actually I could probably play it just about right to be able to camp illegally, once again, on top of Mount Musalak. <laughs> and the weather was supposed to be perfect, you know, clear night, no big deal. Um, Mount Musalak is, let's see, let's see exactly how high that one goes. I want to say it's just over 4,000. Yeah, actually it's 4,802 feet at the peak. And it's kind of interesting. So the climb up to it is pretty steep, pretty direct, you know, the old straight up the hill kind of thing. And you're climbing this and you're coming out of this very thick, beautiful, you know, sort of climax forest. And as you go up, just like the guidebook says, you know, the trees keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And then suddenly the views just open up to infinity and you're seeing all these gorgeous, gorgeous mountains and hillsides. And you know, the whole time my plan is, again, I know I'm, what I'm doing is not right and I don't recommend it, but I was like, man, I want to I wanna go hike up there. I had procured in a small little general store uh, resupply that day, a couple of very tall beers, and I decided, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to huff those suckers up there and I'm going to have an epic night on top of Mount Musilak and just camp out up there. I knew it was a risk. Because if had I gotten up there and there were a bunch of other people, I probably would have just had to keep going. But that's why I sort of posted up and uh, you know waited almost for sunset to come before I I made my push up that mountain and get up there. And once you get out of and above tree line, 
then it's just like little bushes and things like that. And then you're, you're walking up the trail and everything sort of levels off because it's sort of super steep and then pretty flat area, flat top area. The, the very top of Musalak has lots of rocks, not a really great place to actually set up camp. But as you're making your way up there, there's there's a lot of little patches of area where you could you could go ahead and easily if you wanted to set up a tent you could uh, i ended up actually just completely cowboy camping up there which meant sleeping under the stars it was cold uh, i do remember it didn't take long to hit the dew point and i'm just in my sleeping bag on my sleeping pad and i you know i'm not there's no trees to hang your food there's none of that so it's all i'm just like right there I've got my beers and I'm watching the stars and there's, you know, planes and you can see some sort of not city lights, but little town lights and stuff. The view was absolutely tremendous. And it was one of the few nights on the trail that I was having such a a lovely experience. I needed to share it with people. And I remember making a few phone calls. I think I called my brothers and we just chatted about, you know, life out there and what it was like. And and it was sort of just sharing the experience. Um, and it was one of those times where, uh, more than any, I wish I would have had somebody with me at that point to just be able to, you know, crank back and have a beer and, and just talk about how epic, you know, that time and space was. You know, you're, you're just you're up on the top of this big old mountain and it, the, the world's all around you. And, it, you know, that's really the, the true that feeling of just being in that present moment and just enjoying it and not thinking about anything else. That was the one time where I didn't do any tent time as far as looking forward on the trail or plotting and planning. The only thing I knew is that sun up, I needed to be packed up and moving in case there were some early birds that, you know, some ranger or something wanted to come up and surprise me. Cause I can't remember what the fine is for doing that, but it's pretty hefty. So uh, after a pretty sleepless night, I'm not going to lie, uh, cause it was pretty darn wet. Eventually, you know, that's just slight half light comes up and I think I had set an alarm as well, just, just to be on the safe side. And, uh, I was at the very peak of Moose Lock where they have their, you know, little, there's, there's an old foundation from some sort of lodge that was up there and big old cairns or cairns. I can't remember what they're, what they're called, but those basically these, these big uh, stacks of rocks that are there, you know, to find your way through the mist and the clouds and all that sort of stuff and get up there and I see the sunrise and I take pause and I'm watching that. It's really cold, but it's just absolutely striking. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. And I have one of the sketchiest downhill climbs on the whole AT actually, uh, to go. I didn't know that at the time, but I did know that once I climbed down from that, I was headed into another town and headed into staying, you know, in a motel for a night. So I wasn't too worried. Uh, I didn't have too far to go. It was mostly just trying to get a hitchhike in. But as I, as I cusp the hill or the mountain and start heading down, it's, you know, essentially this trail kind of runs right next to, at the time, was was essentially a waterfall stream. And it's a lot of bare rock that the Forest Service had actually bolted in instead of like rebar steps, which are actually pretty darn good because you don't slip on them. Sinks had like wood block triangle tiny steps that were bolted in and they're soaking wet. You know, some of that moss on it and stuff. There's no handrails or anything like that. 
and it's steep. It's really steep. And I can just remember thinking to myself, holy cow, if if I'm going to break a leg, this is definitely the time to do it. So it was a really, really long, drawn-out process to get down. Because I think, too, as you get towards the final stages of the Appalachian Trail, and if you've made it through without being injured in any way, you sort of become a little more cautious, or at least I did. And you sort of slow it down because you know, you know, you're in the home stretch and it'd be very easy to screw up and, and hurt yourself and then have to get off the trail. And how, how much of a bummer would that be? You know, you make it 80% of the way and then, you know, you just slip and fall because you got a little careless. Uh, that would be pretty miserable. I wanted to really make it to the end of this trail. And so finally I get down uh, Mount Musalak and then hit the road, hitchhike in, get into, uh, I believe it was... Might have been Woodstock. Let's see. Do, 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 do. Yeah, North Woodstock and ended up staying in a motel for the night. And and then, uh, yeah, essentially kicking back and relaxing. And I remember that motel was kind of cool because just behind it they had, you know, this is the land of not, you're leaving the land of like creeks and stuff. Now you're getting into these like mountain rivers, big bouldery, you know, riverscapes. And, and I remember walking down there for a while and just sort of enjoying that and, I don't know. It was, it was kind of cool. It definitely became more of a com- completative. <laughs> I can't even think of it. Uh, it just became a time where I did a lot more thinking on the trail and thinking about life and thinking about rejoining the world and thinking about just, you know, just what in the heck it all meant. Uh, but I'm going to actually pause it there as far as this story because I think it would be pretty good to kick off the final chapter of the AT with the hallowed and dangerous white mountains leading right into Maine and the unkempt forests and the last of the little towns and then the fabled hundred mile wilderness to Mount Katahdin and then the end of our our journey and uh, yeah just it's so fun like I, I I think one of the great things about Doing an adventure like this is also being able to look back on it. And I know I've talked about it before, the the whole like journaling and sort of writing these things down. You know, in everyday life, I'm not I'm not constantly, you know, every night in bed, sort of what I did today. But whenever I'm out on some sort of trip, some sort of adventure, i.e. out on the sea or on some sort of camping trip, I'm pretty diligent about, you know, filling it out, getting that information in there, uh, trying to be more data driven these days, because that's the one thing when I look back on these, I'm kind of, you know, I'm at a loss because I'm like, well, what campsite was I at? Why didn't I have the forethought to just put down I was on, you know, Bromley Mountain and the campsite was such and such. So, you know, you sort of learn from it, but I, I can't tell you how much I enjoy being able to 10 years later read an account of of what I was doing on the Appalachian Trail uh, on this day you know at that time and I don't know I, I think if I were if, if people were ever to ask me and I know this is unsolicited advice I would say anytime you're doing something that's out of your comfort zone or interesting or an adventure you know put it down on paper it's it's fun to look back in in all these years and and just check it all out again and sort of be able to relive it. So those are my hallowed 
that the oracle, as Murphy would say, the oracle has spoken. <laughs> um, so hopefully everybody enjoyed that show and the sort of throwback to the Appalachian Trail. And yeah, I promise I will desperately try to get the last iteration of this out uh, in the coming days or weeks, uh, as well as a few more interviews and such like that. I've got, so right now there's a buddy of mine that his boat got struck by lightning last season, and I'm desperate to get him on the show just to talk about the ins and outs of what happens and what broke and what got fried and what didn't. Uh, the other one is talking to a fellow uh, live aboard who has a very boisterous uh, Boston Terrier and what it's like to actually, you know, the pros and cons and the, the joys and uh, frustrations, if you will, of having a animal on board, a small vessel, quote unquote. And, uh, and then the other one is sort of a surprise interview, which I'm hoping will take place next week. I'm not going to mention it, but it's, uh, if it does go off, it's going to be really, really cool and really interesting. So very excited for sort of the things coming up. Um, I guess just a quick update on Sparrow. So the new gallows have been installed. I put those in yesterday. The day before that, I was finishing up the teak, and I have to thank Scott. I have to thank George. I have to thank Ted. Uh, all these people, Jake. Um, all these people were instrumental in getting Mike. Um, all these people definitely helped out huge in making sure that we got Sparrow back up to ocean-ready sort of shape. I'm hoping if the rain sort of peels off later today to be able to install the solar panel. I'm putting it right back where it was before. I'm only going to put one there. The second one, which I, I haven't procured yet, is going to be a roaming one that I put on top of the Dodger in sort of a position where I can pull it and stow it down below safe and sound if things get really, really bad. But I believe with the way that I have affixed this new set of gallows, it's going to be it's going to take another really big wave to rip these off. You know, when I pulled the stump of the gallows, the previous gallows that was left, the screws that were used to hold this thing definitely were well in the cap rail, you know, the teak wood that's about an inch thick. But then to get into the fiberglass, they could only have been going in about a quarter of an inch, maybe definitely nothing, nothing that would have bit. And, you know, all the fault lays on me. I should have checked that, you know, or at least double checked it um, to see and make sure that that was actually a quality, really good uh, <laughs> bedding of that, that piece of equipment. And it wasn't, I mean, I'm surprised it didn't get ripped off sooner, but you know, it always felt like it was good, but you know, going in and actually checking, you know, it would have behooved me, or it would have been a very smart move to unscrew one of those and be like, holy cow, let's get bigger screws for that. Because ideally I'd through bolt the thing, but I can't get access to that area without cutting a giant hole in my boat. And uh, I definitely don't want to do that or removing the fuel tanks. So, uh, yeah, that's sort of the update. Uh, you know, engines running. Things seem to be going well. I've got a few more projects to do down below today. But, yeah, mainly it's get the solar panel all knocked up and put on there and... Uh, and then we're pretty much ocean ready. It feels really good. Last night I ended up putting the big sunshade slash, you know, rain, rain cover up. Uh, and you need the gallows to do that. So it was the first time I've had it up in a while. And 
Ah, it just felt so good when the rain came and I could still be up there. And I know that when we finally get back to springtime weather and it's like 85 degrees and the sun is bearing down, I'm going to be enjoying it even more in a nice cool boat uh, instead of a baking oven. So that is my update from Sparrow. That is my story from the AT. Thank you all so much for the continued support and uh, just listening and uh and all the, the great emails and comments and stuff. I really appreciate the sort of Sailing into Oblivion family that's out there. Um, it's really, really great. And we are going to kick things off and keep going with some pretty cool interviews coming up. So other than that, I hope everybody has a great day, great weekend. And uh, until next time.